You're listening to The Crux in partnership with Google. Hello, James here, and you're listening to the IAB UK podcast. Welcome back to The Crux, a three-part podcast series run in collaboration with Google, which takes on the issues at the heart of marketing's future with a range of industry experts to get to The Crux, the one question marketers should be asking themselves. In this second episode, we're unlocking the privacy and trust opportunity with Femi Taiwo, Head of Consultancy at Assembly Global, author and psychologist Natalie Nahai, and Google UK's privacy lead, Adam Taylor. As conventional ad targeting methods become outdated, we investigate the strategies and explore the benefits of a new privacy-first way forward for marketers. But I start by asking Natalie how the shift to hyper-personal communication has changed the way we, as consumers, view the world. So originally it was quite a broadcasty way of receiving ads, right? So you see a billboard, you get a jingle, you watch something on the news or in between news segments. And now obviously there's the kind of personalisation, whether you're watching content on your favourite social channel or you're watching something on YouTube, whatever it is, or you're getting an email prompt. Mm. There are such advances now in marketing tech that we each receive really personalised content based on historical behaviour. And the pros and cons of this Mm. are that, you know, if you're aware of it, you can quote unquote train the algorithm. If that's in Instagram, you just select what you want to watch. Like, accounts you want to follow. If it's in something like Google, you might use my ad center, something like this. But the cons are that you're then expecting to be served things that are based on historical data that limit your future options based on what you've done in the past. And that reduces our flexibility to encounter new content, Mm -hmm. new material that encourages growth, that encourages transformation. So like, there are some interesting dynamics at play in terms of what happens when you serve people things that historically have been interested, uh, interesting to them. You're also reducing the need for synchronicity. And yeah, I mean, it's it gets complicated. And do you think from a sort of people consumer perspective, our relationship with brands have changed because of that? Yeah, I mean, I think on the positive side, if there's a brand that you know and love whose values yeah. are aligned with yours, you're going to want to hear from them. They can tailor the message. It feels more intimate, but it has to be based on earned trust. If you have the opposite, for instance, where you're being advertised to by a brand you've never interacted with before, you can end up with what's called psychological reactance, which is when a particular freedom has been lost or threatened. So in this case, it might be privacy. Mm -hmm. And our motivation to regain that that freedom leads us to resist the social influence of others. Uh, So it can create this kind of creepiness factor where you go, I am never going to buy from that brand because how do they have this data? Why are they sending me this stuff when they haven't already established a relationship with me? That feels like the sort of the junk email filter on my inbox, just in a pure business sense. It's a bit like, how on earth are you coming at me from this point of view? I guess all roads on this kind of lead to, I guess it's all about trust in terms of how consumers trust brands, any relationship in the world, whether it's with your children or your partner or with brands, it's sort of, it's a core fundamental, isn't it? That that hasn't changed. Trust is obviously one of the most crucial predictors of a healthy, well-functioning relationship. Mm-hmm. And that applies whether you're talking about, you know, family members, colleagues, partners, or indeed within the relationship between brands and customers. Online, one of the proxies to trust is transparency. Mm-hmm. And this also expresses itself in how brands 
offer up and communicate unpalatable information, which there will always be because we always make trade-offs all the time. Yeah. And so it's often about how do you give customers the respect to offer them the information that they need to know that they maybe don't want to know so they can make informed choices. Yeah. And there are some brands that do this really well. So it's kind of leaning into clear communication, not hiding unpalatable truths so that people have the choice. They know that you're going to give it to them straight. Mm. And in the long term, that's a much better strategy. Where are brands getting it right, Femi, from your point of view when it comes to trust and privacy? I think the brands are sort of doing the best things around the sort of spaces. Those who have a good history, sort of take Nassau's point on sort of what's happened in the past 20 years. Mm. The best brands you see who are doing the best things in sort of trust and privacy, at least from perception perspective. Uh, technically, there's a different story entirely there and we can all argue that everyone's on a spectrum or on a journey, but mm. from a um, from a perception perspective, it's usually brands that have established some sort of trust in their brand itself. So if you think like the Coca-Colas, the Pepsis, the uh, Ralph Lauren's, the, their household name in their own right. It's ingrained, yeah. Exactly, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. You know, they have a heritage of some sorts, right? Whereas if you think more towards the disruption the internet sort of brought in the past mm. 20 years, it's given opportunity for a lot of new brands to enter their space very quickly, right? And, you know, increase their customer base. But, and this is probably maybe unfairly, but true for fast fashion quite a lot. Yeah. They get yeah. the customer base, they get the revenue, but the trust is very fleeting. It's mm. just, as, it's as good as the next offer or the next sale or whatever it is that's going to be in there. So, there is almost like the brands that are weathering the storms over trust and privacy are the ones who've built the heritage, built yeah. the story around how they were founded. They have a founding myth or they have an aspirational position in society. Right. Yeah. And, and I mean, for us as, as, as an organization where we're very skewed as an agency towards luxury brands. Mm-hmm. So we, we get to see that evolution over time, you know, in, in a very meaningful way. Whereas with the sort of more transient brands, you get the idea that, yeah, I can buy today. I can grow. Slightly revenue. more transactions. Yeah. And, it's, it? and, and yeah, mm-hmm. you get that sort of, that nuance of my trust is as good as this sale. Yeah. And then if I get a better offer in my inbox tomorrow, then maybe I don't buy from yeah. you. And that's almost the focus you see today is yeah. a lot of transactional engagements with brands yeah. are now trying to elevate themselves to a brand positioning perspective. You know, yeah. we're either good for the environment yeah. or we're good for business or we're good for people as a whole yeah. or... You know, they want to now backport a heritage story mm. into a very transactional relationship. Yeah, got it. But of course, lots of these brands don't have that heritage. I think about banking and how much that was disrupted. You know, lots of established things. And then you've got Starling and Monzo and all these other brands, which you need a great deal of trust with someone you're going to trust to have your money. I mean, that's a difficult thing to, to kind of come in. Are there any shortcuts to trust, I guess, in your mind? I think in a strange way, because the brands like Starling, Monzo, you know, Revolut, they solve a very particular pain point ah, right? right and i think if you can tap into that pain point that becomes a good way it's a good proxy for trust so Got transparency it. is one mm-hmm. of them you know i think meeting a very specific need like i remember when i opened my Revolut account not a plug just <laughs> state by fact other bags are available <laughs> yes <laughs> you know i did that on the train in like 10 minutes right yeah, um, yeah, yeah. and it and it was a logic of i haven't got to go anywhere right i'll take a selfie and i send this over right and i take a picture of my driving license and you get me a note back mm-hmm. in 10 minutes saying mm-hmm. welcome aboard that was enough to overcome everything else. I mean, yes, we can argue, why would you just trust someone with your, you know, with your details, your passport and everything else? But yeah. all the core tenets for trust in the sector like banking is usually outsourced to someone like the FCA, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. You come out, as long as you're FCA approved, Got it's it. a bit like sort of travel's done this as well, right? APTA and ATOL, right, are proxies for trust. 
Got it. And so yeah. if you're in a sector that requires a high level of trust, the best way for you to really progress is to outsource that to an external body mm. and have them verify you. Shortcuts on trust, Natalie. I'd love your take. Not that there's an exhaustive <laughs> list at all, but I think there's some sense, isn't there? There are trusted organisations, establishment things in the world that perhaps, you know, getting yourself close to or aligning with perhaps give that confidence which perhaps can lead to more trust. I think Flo makes such a good point about the fact that, you know, you you see brands understanding the power of legacy by trying to retrofit stories. And Mm. I think you've also got to consider that legacies can also weigh heavy around the neck of a brand. So if you think about traditional banks, there are all sorts of reasons why you might want to avoid going to a traditional bank. Mm. But thinking about trust, this is some of the research I did for the Business Unusual book that I wrote. There is a framework for integrity and integrity is one of the most important things that you have to be able to demonstrate if you are going to attract the kind of trust that lasts for a longer period of time, then also earns you leniency when brands make mistakes and you hit right. tail, you know, whatever it might be. Mm. So these include committing upfront to specific values or ethics or principles, having a charter where, for instance, a B Corp would yeah. be a good example mm. of this where they have to make the commitment, but then there's also a rigorous process through which they have to enact those principles. Mm. Then being coherent in word and deed, you know, walking the talk, showing that you can do what you say you're going to do, which is where structures like that come into their own. Being consistent over time. So that's building that kind of track record that a third party can look at and say, all right, you said you were going to do it, you've acted on it and you've done it consistently enough that I know that I can trust you to play to your word. And finally, and this is perhaps a tricky one, being congruent in motivation and action. And this means doing the right thing for the right reason. And typically the best way to see if a brand is willing to do this, especially early brands, are they willing to take a risk, for instance, a hit to their bottom line in order to stand up for the values they espouse? And I think that's particularly an interesting spot because where Gen Z and millennials are concerned, there is a greater sensitivity towards washing of any kind Mm. and people are better educated. They have higher expectations. They're more intrinsically motivated to buy from brands that maybe they pay a bit more for, but they're aligned with their values. And so that last element is also really important. So commitment, coherence, consistency, and congruence. Mm. And if you can demonstrate that or analyze your favorite brands and see how they're performing across those four principles, then you're off to a good start in building trust. The last point, and when I think about sustainability in in particular, you know, that there isn't, it's not enough to say that we're carbon neutral and we're going to plant lots and lots of trees and that offsets what we're doing. I'm interested in your supply chain, the factories you're using, where are you at? Like, it's the whole gamut. The whole shebang. You can't kind of go around this thing and almost the rise of B Corp as this means of going, because that's a, we tried to go through it, it's a really rigorous test you've got to go through you've got to do it kind of every year and it feels like now for businesses it's this real usp as to how we're different to the rest of the set so whether you're a chocolate brand or you're in media or whatever you might be this means of showing that you're doing the right thing that all makes a lot of sense doesn't it yeah i mean so this is a plug right we are tantalizingly (laughs) close at assembly to be caught status right so because we've got the update, I think, two days ago on, on sort of where our status is for, for Q3. Pretty certain we're going to be there by January, right? So, <laughs> you know, what Natalie says about the risk I take of a business, like we have to make very practical decisions on yeah. who we pitch for, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, yes, gambling's yeah. not in our wheelhouse, you know, tobacco's not in our... You know, those things are active decisions, right? And it means that as a business, you want to grow, right? We're part of Stagwell as a holding group, the mm-hmm. PLC, right? There is pressure from the street to show numbers, but we also have to make the right decisions on... This is what's good for our business in line with our values, mm-hmm. right? And sort of use that as a differentiation point, you know, which 
it helps us because we can win clients like Patagonia, right? Because the authenticity is there, right? We're aligned to the values and, and we sort of also get a very different way of doing business because sometimes selling more like Patagonia is not a good thing, yeah. right? You know, so yeah, yeah. It, it challenges us as a business to reinvent how we evaluate our success yeah. and how our clients evaluate what we're doing and, and sort of how that works. But I agree completely on, on the idea of sort of being able to test your commitments early. And I think if there's one thing that brands want to do to win trust, it's not wait for the crisis. Mm. It's go and find those opportunities mm. to test them early and then use them as platforms to build your legacy, your heritage and say, this is what we stand for, not have the public dictate when you are failing or succeeding at it. Yeah. There's this discomfort, Natalie, which is quite profound in our world in advertising. Advertising traditionally has been about growth has meant consuming Mm. more of stuff or getting people that currently don't consume your brand of fizzy drink to try it and consume more of it. That is a real tension with doing the right thing and maybe is going to cost you money or whatever. How do you think in this world of advertising we balance that? I mean, that's how people get paid. That's how growth kind of happens consumerism yeah it's that really i think that is one of if not the most pressing question of our current moment is how do we survive and thrive in a framework that requires that we work and buy and sell in order to live while creating a different set of systems or altering our current system in order to support the flourishing of all Mm. life on earth and it's tricky. And I think it's very easy to kind of, if you scroll through Instagram for a while to see like, <laughs> I'm going to be a bit mean here, but like super young generations, so it's like jack, jack it all in and X, Y, and Z. And the reality is really complex. Yeah. And I think businesses at their best have an extraordinary role to play in stewarding different forms of collaboration, mm. competition, business, you know, when it comes to crisis response, quite famously in recent times for various crises, governments are quite slow often because of the frameworks they exist within. Mm. And there are remarkable stories of businesses that step in to support others at cost to themselves and actually are able to affect real change rapidly and at scale. And so I think there's an opportunity here for, you know, compassionate, good-hearted, like it's like the good ancestor, the Roman Krishnarich idea of being good ancestors yeah. to future generations, yeah. yes, unborn. As business leaders, we're in an extraordinary position to be able to make decisions that will alter the trajectory collectively of our and other species. So it's how do you revisit that tension, course correct, knowing that yes, you do have to make money for the time being, but how can we do that in a way that regenerates the systems we rely upon to live? Yeah. It's a tricky one. Yeah. Can we focus down into data on this as well? Because this feels like this is this big football that is brands over time of more and more of our data, increasingly more and more personal. It's doorbells, it's things that we wear, it's phones, it's where we are. There's a massive responsibility there and it's got to play a role in that trust between brands and consumers. What's your take on how important data is in that sort of matrix? I think the most sort of important thing for brands to bear in mind is that the data they collect, you know, regardless of the type of high sensitive it is, has to have a purpose. And as long as the consumer understands that, yeah. right, then generally everything's okay. The subtlety to that is brands also have to be cognizant of the fact that consumers are probably more savvy than they give them credit for. Yeah, 100%. Right. Mm. And in so doing, they can very easily spot when you're at risk of misuse or abuse of their data. Mm. Right. You know, so, you know, as an example, I, 
live with my Garmin watch, right? I sleep with it. I look at all my sort of stats on a daily basis, right? And Incredibly personal data, yes. how you're sleeping, you know, all that all kind of thing. Yeah, and, it's, and for me, it's, it's a very important sort of metric and indicator sort of my, at least the observable state of my health, mm. right? What I wouldn't expect is for any kind of Garmin advertising, right, to leverage that or mm. Strava as a connected sort of app to leverage that and use that for targeting. Yeah, and we've seen, I mean, you talked about crises a minute ago, Natalie. I mean, we've seen multiple crises around the use of people's data in recent times. I mean, it's it's up there as big as environmental crises and all these other things. I mean, it's a huge deal. Not only are there, you know, monetary fines for this sort of stuff, but you are fundamentally eroding how people think and feel towards you vis-a-vis trust. Mm. And this is very much based on subjective preferences. So I want to sort of also scope the fact that some folks are very comfortable with their data being served back to them in the form of ads, as long as they don't know. Some people don't care at all. I definitely tend towards the side where I want to have privacy. I will, if you've earned my trust, I will give you information. I'll even electively offer you things. Like for instance, with Bloom and Wild, in 2019, they sent out an email to their database because they'd received a handful of emails asking to opt out from Mother's Day messages. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they sent out an email to all of their customers. I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was around 58,000 people. And of course, only a fraction are going to opt out. But the fact that they sent out this email yeah. and put agency back in the hands of their customers, mm-hmm. it blew up their social media feeds. They had national coverage that they didn't have to pay for. They ended up creating what's called the thoughtful marketing movement. And again, it was this sense of, we respect you enough to get you to opt out of stuff which could maybe, you know, give us an uplift in sales of X, Y, or Z. And that that level of returning agency and control to people for the right reasons often engenders a context in which people will then elect to give you more. Mm. And with the deprecation of third-party cookies, wanting to build trust over time, you know, all the crises we're facing, we need that quality of earned trust if we are going to create and sustain brands that are going to be around in years to come. If you just want to do a quick kind of flash in the pan type of, you know, business, maybe that doesn't apply to you. But I think any brand that is serious about longevity really needs to consider their approach when it comes to data, privacy, who owns what, and how you give people a say in the ways in which you use their information. And, and the, I think the best compliment you could give to Bloom and Wild is that so many other brands have adopted that now, oh, in, whether it's around Father's yeah. Day or whatever it might be, but there's a sensitivity right. there. But yeah, I had no idea they were the first, but yeah, what, what an incredible example. You mentioned third-party cookies there, Natalie, but Femi, I mean, big, big change that's coming... What's your sense of levels of preparedness in our world? Are people trialling different things that don't have over-reliance on third-party cookies? I mean, what's your sense? I think um, this is funny enough, a weird throwback to 2018, right? So when the GDPR came into, into force, mm. it was kind of like, a, oh no, we never saw this coming, right? And it was, well, the EU rules are, there's two years worth of adaptation time, right? Yeah. And then you get trials. But still, we're all in a panic and, and a lot of sort of different things happen off the back of that. But I think that from what we know from, you know, the Chrome updates and sort of Google updates back out to, to the industry at large, the necessary changes are going to be, let's not say forced, encouraged upon the industry, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, have a consent management platform in place and make sure that can help users make the right informed choices on that consent and make sure that, you know, you're not putting yourself at risk. And then most importantly, you know, Google having a certification program for certain consent management platforms will mm-hmm. also audit that to make sure that those consent flags have been passed. I think that 
gives a lot of a lot of brands a level of assurance that you get from ATOR Protected or APTA Registered, you know, where there is an yeah, external agency yeah. or external force that is mm-hmm. handling the standardization of that, right? Yeah. And, and I think that, especially for brands, less for publishers, because I think that they've lived this sufficiently for the past few years and they kind of have their good rigors in place. But for brands, it was almost like the GDPR applies, but unless you're going to, you know, very famous travel company that leaked passport details, right? Unless you're going to, you know, leak out passport details, you know, by accident, it's okay, it doesn't apply to me, right? It's just cookies. Whereas yeah. now it's yeah, more yeah. like, here's a framework for it. Yeah. Here is how it's going to impact your advertising and your ability to advertise. Yeah. And I think that's probably the most important change, which is my revenue is now at risk. Yeah. It turns it from a marketing conversation yeah, to a money, business conversation. Money really talks. Exactly. Is it a sort of a human nature thing, Natalie, like from a sort of psychology a- angle, is it just that we're really slow to move to stuff like this like Femi said we've known about this for a long time we're not there's no leaping surprises on people why is it it feels very difficult to sort of galvanize people around like let's take some action now let's figure out what our other options are before we get to this cliff edge and we can't use this thing that's fundamentally driven digital advertising since when it started is it just the way we're sort of wired up as humans that we're not doing things about it yeah, I mean, I think two things. One is to kind of reiterate the pain point. Is it going to be a tangible, immediate pain of losing mm. money? If yes, then suddenly you're going to be more motivated. And I think it also ties into our resistance to change and this behavioural science idea of hyperbolic discounting, which is essentially yeah. the bias that we have to prioritise immediate, tangible rewards and satisfaction over future rewards. Right. And so it's a sense of, if I can win now by getting data and making more money why would I put that off if at some future date I'm going to reap the benefits? Yeah. Final thought from you, Femi. I mean, the ICO, the, the regulator have been really clear on this. They don't create something that looks, smells, feels like a third-party cookie. It's just not going to fly. What advice would you be giving to, to advertisers, agencies, everyone in the ecosystem? What should they be doing right now in the lead-up to deprecation of third-party cookies? Um, I'd say there's nothing new that we're having to create or use to make this work, mm-hmm. right? So all the tools are already there. They've been available for a while. There's enough data on what they can do, what their failure rates like, what AI can do to model, mm-hmm. you know, the gaps. Those things are already in place. The biggest challenge most brands have right now is their technical infrastructure internally to make right. this work. You know, if I was going to prioritize, if I was a brand or CMO going to prioritize where I put effort into, I think that the kind of changes that are happening right now are only possible, especially from a European perspective, because the EU has been able to collectively, as a single market, become large enough to rival the US, right? right? You know, from a venture capitalist perspective, there are more growing businesses in this side of the world than there are across the pond, you know? And that gives it an outsized proportion of future value, right? For customers, you know, clients, consumers, mm-hmm. whatever I call them, you know, whereas... The US is still a very large single market, as in just a single country, you know, as it were. So I'd say, technically speaking, look at your business and how it's structured. Look at the opportunity gains for you, you know, if you operate mostly in the European economic area and you have a sizable customer base there or that's where you want to grow internationally, then prioritize that accordingly and, and meet the, the regulations. And then just do your homework, like any average agency can tell you what you need to know about what to get set up and how to put 
things in place and if you're not getting that counsel then look elsewhere it's that simple there's no shortage of, uh, of information out there and natalie on this point of you know clearly what becomes very important is this first party customer data whether you're garmin collecting sleep or whether you're a brand looking for people to tell you things you talked about some there what advice would you give to advertisers on how to go about getting that first party data to get people clear trusting you on that you're gonna treat it in the right way and look after it because that's going to become incredibly important when we don't have the sort of the proxy of third party cookies what advice would you give to marketers Kind of like the advice I'd give for people who are in relationship is like, ask the person what they want, <laughs> build that trust yes. and, you know, be honest, be like, look, we want to make money. We want to sell you stuff mm. that you're going to like. What do you want from us? Mm. And building that trust by, again, back to the four C's, by making sure that you're building integrity, looking at your value chain and really taking the human factor into account. I think something that doesn't get mentioned so much is that as as everything becomes more and more automated and increasingly virtual, it's those brands that are able to create emotional attachment, response, affiliation, that are able to kind of provoke something more meaningful and longer lasting in you. They're the ones that people are going to want to interact with, refer to their friends, etc. And so it's still vitally important. Relationship is everything. Start there. You're listening to The Crux in partnership with Google. We'll return to Femi and Natalie shortly, but to get Google's perspective on the value of first-party relationships, I spoke to Google's UK privacy lead, Adam Taylor, and kicked off by getting his view on the deprecation of third-party cookies. I think marketers definitely have the ability to become change agents in their organizations on this topic. And if we take deprecation of third-party cookies, it may seem really specific and unique and niche to the world of marketing, but the broader implications of what we're talking about here impact a much larger proportion of any business. Privacy should be at the heart of data strategy. It should be the heart of the way that brands are thinking about engaging with consumers. So I really feel like marketers have the ability to build cross-functional teams, create relationships with representatives from legal, from product, CRM, development teams, whatever it might be. But it can be a fantastic starting point to explain those ecosystem changes to them and why that makes your job as a marketer harder. And then it really sets you up nicely to be able to effectively communicate the wants and needs that you have as a marketing team for access to data, for different methods of approaching consumers, for different ways of working with your end consumer. I think that really is the way that your marketing team can set themselves apart and really progress action in the right way. What about some top tips then? So top tips for marketers on how they can deliver targeted advertising in this new era. Yeah, and look, Targeted advertising is is certainly going through a change and and behavioural advertising in in particular going through a change. So we see regulatory and technical changes that have adapted the way that the underlying infrastructure works and the way that marketers can make use of data. And it's unquestionably becoming a more durable and more strategic bet to double down on responsibly gathered first-party data. And the value of that first-party data really is undeniable, which is why we at Google are investing in tools that allow marketers to organize, import, and manage their first-party data on our platforms with all the appropriate privacy controls in place. If we take Kia as a really good example of this, a customer that we work with really closely, they connected their first-party data to our tools using Customer Match, and they've already seen a four times better conversion rate and 268% increase in their click-through rate versus standard activity on our platforms. Mm. Let me ask you about AI. What, what, What are the benefits of integrating 
insights driven from AI with first-party data for campaigns that advertisers are running. Yeah, absolutely. And we really do see the two working hand in tandem. Um, Ultimately, as a marketer, your fundamental goals for marketing of driving awareness, intent or sales really aren't changing, but the way Mm. you achieve those goals certainly is. So to help you succeed in this new landscape, you do need durable advertising solutions and services that can deliver stronger growth, more exciting creative, more accurate measurement, all while protecting and respecting user privacy. And ultimately, it's that high-quality first-party data that will be your unique selling point versus the other competitors in your space. Mm. Your data fuels your AI, which fuels your performance. Yeah. And why should brands be getting excited about this AI-powered opportunity? AI is the biggest change, but also the largest opportunity for businesses. We've seen this in numerous ways in our industry, and the last probably notable one was the shift to mobile. And in the next few years, I think we're going to experience a step change in a similar way, and a step change in what we're actually able to do with this technology. But as I mentioned, AI will only be as good as the underlying data that's powering Mm. it. If you're optimizing it towards the wrong thing, it's not going to meet your business objectives. You really need to think about how you can unlock that enormous power through responsibly gathered data that's powering your AI. We talked a lot today about durable privacy-first tools and solutions Mm. that Google has to help you deliver that strong foundation of first-party data and measurement, which will hopefully allow you to continue to make decisions with confidence despite the changing ecosystem, which ultimately will drive you stronger business performance and greater growth with Google. Amazing. It all sounds very simple. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank you. Google's UK privacy lead, Adam Taylor there, giving marketers a lot to think about. For our final thoughts, let's return to Femi and Natalie for their take on what this is all about. The crux of building trust with customers by being more transparent with their data. So we just heard from Adam Femi, meaningful, memorable and manageable. They feel like some very sensible top tips to make advertising better. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it in the context of what's historically worked before mm. the age of digital media, it has always been meaningful, memorable, me- uh, manageable, you know, memorable, depends on how old you are, you know, Jaffa cakes, half, you know, this is our little in-joke. No one listening to this <laughs> is ever going to get the Jaffa cakes reference. It's our little thing. But yeah, and I think definitely things that are meaningful are, are critical. You know, we don't, sell or advertise things for the sake of doing so, right? Mm. If you're going to spend money to do something, make it count. The Deming adage, I think, is, you know, you can't manage what you don't measure, right? So we've got to make sure that we're in a position where we can we can understand what's going on and whether it's MMMs or it's going to be some sort of, you know, Mm. digital attribution, you know, let's put the right bits in place. And this point on manageable is also around, you've got to be transparent enough to give people tools so that they can actually manage what they want about privacy they can turn the dials up or down they can opt in or they can the expectation is that people will want to do that by themselves because as we've talked about they are really savvy they're not expecting someone to do that on behalf and sort of double guess what you might want to see you've got to give those tools in the hands of people i suspect that initially at least for sort of um, a few more years we're not going to see that come to the fore as much because brands are are usually of the approach of first off the boat gets the arrow mm. right so they don't want to get narrow they want to get the land but hopefully we'll see a bloom and wild who are going to do something different and yeah. how they put that choice to consumers and then everyone else can then see the positive benefits of that yeah. and adopt that approach yeah 3ms nasty sort of sound pretty sound pretty good way to to sort of move forward yeah i mean i think one of the things that really strikes me is that 
what we're looking for is to meet people's deepest needs for self-determination, mm. to give them agency, to give them skills to achieve the goals that are meaningful to them, and to give them that sense of relationship and belonging. And so if a brand can do that well, structurally, but also in terms of their communication, and make them feel, maybe we can add in a cheeky fourth <laughs> end, <but> emotion, <laughs> then they'll be very well placed <laughs> to establish the conditions for a really robust long-term customer brand relationship. So yeah, thinking about greater self-determination, building that emotional connection, and then delivering on what you promise. And it does feel like now more than ever is this moment you've talked in our conversation beforehand it does it feels that you know for for business leaders making decisions you know there's some big meaty things to wrestle with here and the expectation is that we need to get those things right yeah and i think it's again it's kind of if we're going to adapt to turbulent times we can't just keep doing what we've always done Mm. there's going to be a question of what do you most cherish what are you willing to give up where like which hill are you willing to kind of i don't want to say die on but you know we have to take stands for things that we care deeply about and hopefully that are aligned with a common good. And I think if brands can get ahead of this, and it relates back to what Femi was saying exactly, it's like, you can't wait until pressure is expressed upon you externally. Like If you want to care about whatever the theme is that you care about, whether it's the earth, whether it's diversity of any kind, like you need to plant that into the DNA of your business yeah. and make sure that you're leading the charge, not just reacting to it. That's the most important part of that equation. Brilliant. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Jaffa cakes, please. (laughs) (laughs) And that's it for episode two. You've been listening to The Crux, a three-part podcast series run in collaboration with Google. In next week's final instalment of The Crux, I'm having a slightly different conversation as I sit down with Nishma Patel-Rob, the current president of WACL, the club of female leaders in advertising and communications on a mission to improve gender equality in our industry. We'll journey through the evolution of women in advertising from past stereotypes to present realities and look ahead to the future and the need for more balanced leadership at the top. For now, though, thanks very much for listening. This is The Crux in partnership with Google.